Welcome to another episode of the CC Podcast Conversations, where inspiring Christians share their faith-filled stories. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast, leave a five-star rating, and write a review. This helps push our content to a broader audience. Are you new to listening? Check out our other podcasts. First, the CC Podcast Daily Dose Devotions, where we're walking through the Bible, focusing on short clips of Scripture. Second is the CC Broadcast, where our weekly radio programming is archived. These podcasts are available wherever you're listening or at christiancrusaders.org. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. Here's our host, Matt Reister, the Executive Director of Christian Crusaders. Hey everybody, Matt Reister here today, and I have another great guest with you. This is Mark McConnell. Mark, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here, Matt. Drove up from Pella, Iowa. I did. A couple hours down the road. Nice day to drive. Perfect day to drive. It's a gorgeous spring day. Took the afternoon off. I did. Tell me about your real job. So I am, uh, my day-to-day, my day job, Monday through Friday, nine to five or whatever, is uh, I'm a talent development specialist for a manufacturer there in Pella. And so when I tell people, what does that mean? I'm a, I'm a corporate teacher, a corporate trainer. So internal communication, soft skills, leadership skills for our internal workforce. I help upskill people with that. So when you leave college, hopefully the learning doesn't end. Hopefully we can, you know, keep you growing in your career. And so my job is to put continuous learning opportunities in front of folks. That's great. Um, a couple other things I wanted to, well, first of all, uh, you wrote a book called The Prime of My Days. Really, it's a deep dive into Job 29. Mm-hmm. And so I would just tell people, listen to this right now. This is, th- this book, I'll just be real honest with you. I get books given to me all the time. Yeah. You know, like, oh, here, read this, check this out. And I'm not, I'm not a huge reader. Mm-hmm. And so they've got that against them. And, and then, <laughs> and then, and then it's usually like, you know what? I'm sure your grandson's a great guy, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, and I, I don't tell him I'm not going to read it, but I'm probably not going to read it. Right. And you gave me this book, and because of our connection, which we'll kind of talk about that, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to read this. And I sat down and read it, and I was just – I was surprised by how good it was, how insightful it was, how much I would say – I even think one of the people who wrote uh, a foreword or a recommendation on the back talked about how there was some new content in here that they'd never heard of or mm-hmm. seen. Anyway, we'll get into that. But I enjoyed this, and, and people – who are listening will enjoy this interview and really hopefully enjoy the book. It's called The Prime of My Days. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon. Or Do you have a website? Uh, primedays.org. Primedays.org. Yep. Perfect. And we're going to be in Job 29 a little bit. So if you want to have a Bible with you or something on your phone while you're listening to this, uh, it's taken right out of Job 29. But before we get to all that, just uh, a few chit-chat things. First of all, you use a metaphor of gumbo throughout this book. Are you like actually a cook? Do you I, cook stuff? Not like, I'm not your your chef or the guy watching cooking shows on TV. And there's really, I mean, there's probably only a handful of things that I would say I'm good at cooking. But several years ago, I was sort of, by accident, introduced into Cajun cuisine, and I loved it. And so I was like, at home, I was like, I want to try a few of these things. And so I've, I've not mastered anything except for gumbo. When it comes to Cajun, you say you've mastered, and I say I've met my, my wife. Even my wife is my harshest critic in the kitchen. It says your gumbo is great. I'm impressed. And so um, I've never had gumbo. And as I read, you know, you kind of talk about that at the beginning of each chapter as you're carrying out this metaphor mm-hmm. of cooking a batch of gumbo. And uh, I've never had it, but I'm telling you, by the end of the book, uh, I was like, I got to try this stuff. <laughs> it, ta- it sounds like it tastes good. I am with your wife. I, I don't mm-hmm. want shrimp in it. I don't eat oh, a lot of things man. that swim. <laughs> You're missing out, brother. But we'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, second thing, you're a Red Sox fan. I am. Now that's almost a disqualifier. I don't know how you invited me in here. <laughs> Seriously. 
And, and here's, here's what drive even more nuts. So that, that was my rebellion growing up because I come from a long line of Yankees fans. Oh, no. Like, I tell people I didn't smoke, I didn't drink, run around with the wrong crowd, but I rooted for the wrong team. And I think there are times <laughs> I think my dad would have wished I'd just taken a sip of beer instead. So... <laughs> Well, what's interesting, I think I told you about this one time when we met. My son and I are seeing the, the Yankees play in every ballpark. Yeah, super fun. And we were just last weekend, so right now it's 2021 April mm-hmm. for people who are listening to this in the 3000s. Um, and we were at Cleveland, and that's our 27th ballpark. Oh, my goodness. It was a great day. It was the first day back after COVID. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, we've had a, a blast doing that. But I'll tell you what, my favorite stadium, everyone always asks mm-hmm. when they find out what we're doing, my favorite stadium without question is Fenway Park. Oh, Have you been out there? I have. Not. We, my wife and I were set to go shortly before we had kids, and the trip fell apart, unfortunately. So I've yet to make it there. you got to do it. Oh. Like, make it a priority. You've got son or sons? I've got two boys, yeah. How old are they? Uh, nine and six. Okay. So it's getting about time. We're getting, yeah, we're probably a couple more years before my youngest could really appreciate it, but it's yeah. something we'd love to do. Yeah. I don't care if my kids appreciate it. I just want to appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I get the clam chowder and, and baseball. <laughs> yeah. So that's awesome. So um, talk about our our connection back in the day. Yeah. So, you know, for those who are listening, so Matt and I met, um, it's got to be close, a little over 20 years ago now. I graduated from um, high school in 94 and from you and I in 98. I think I think you and I met, uh, I want to say it was the fall of 1999, okay. uh, I think, if, if, if memory serves. And so Matt and I met. So at the time, I was a brand new freshman at the University of Northern Iowa. And and Matt, you were, I believe, on staff with a church here in town doing some college ministry stuff, That's correct? right. That's yeah. my first year of college ministry. Absolutely. And so I had, so our connection was we met at um, a college ministry thing called Basic Brothers and Sisters in Christ there mm-hmm. on campus, at the University of Northern Iowa. It was probably one of the first you know few weeks I ever attended, and I was invited uh, by a, a young man by the name of J. Chad Symington, yes. who, um, funny enough, was your roommate, I believe, at the time. Yeah, and not at the time, but the year before. The year before, or that's, two years before. Okay, so that's yeah. how you and you and Chad knew each other, yep. and, and Chad and I, we were so it was kind of a double double faceted relationship. So we were fraternity brothers. Others. He mm-hmm. was an alum of the fraternity I had just rushed and joined on campus. And he was also a man, I didn't know he was doing it at the time, but he was the guy discipling me on campus. And so he invited me to a freshman Bible study. He was on staff at the time with the Navigators Christian Ministry. Yep. And I was one of the guys that he was kind of targeting mm-hmm. uh, through some of his relationships. And so he introduced us that night at Basic. And I think you and I really were nothing more than acquaintances in, mm-hmm. that, in that point in life mm-hmm. until we reconnected here just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, we just celebrated Chad's life. He passed away about a year ago, mm-hmm. 11 months ago. We saw you at that funeral. Um, that's classic Chad. Chad was involved with the fraternity for the sake of reaching guys in the fraternity. Absolutely. And uh, what, a, what a legacy um, he had in, in ministry. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's cool. So I ran into you. You were at the Cedar Falls Bible Conference a couple of years ago, and that's when you gave me this book. Uh, so I, I think I first reconnected with you a couple years ago because I saw that you were the director of the Cedar Falls Bible Conference. And this last summer, which would have been my second or third year back, is when I gave the book That's to you. That's when you gave the book. Yeah. So it's been almost a year since you've had it in your hand. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So um, Job 29. Now, one thing that we do a Daily Dose Bible Overview here on the podcast. Actually, it's a different podcast, CC Podcast, Daily Dose Devotions. But it's a daily devotion from the Bible. We started in Genesis 1 in May of 2020, Mm -hmm. and uh, now we're in Daniel. I just did Daniel Mm -hmm. in the Lion's Den for today. And so we've been through Job, Mm -hmm. and I didn't even notice or touch 
Job 29. <laughs> You're so, not alone. So um, I have my own theory about why, as I, as I looked around, there's not a lot out there on Job 29. Mm-hmm. And I have my own theory about that. But why, why do you think we don't know much about Job 29? I want to hear yours first. Well, let me, let me take, a tip, take a step back and, and talk about why we don't hear a lot about Job necessarily in general, let alone that chapter of the book. You mean right? Job? Exactly. <laughs> exactly, Job. Um, no, Job, Job's an intimidating book mm. for a Christian to dive into yep. for a lot of reasons. Number one, it's long. It's a slog to get through. It's a downer. It's one uh, until the very end. It's one of the most depressing books in the entire Bible. Um, it's a book that's hard to place on the chronological spectrum, and I unpack that a little bit in some of my early chapters. It's, yep. it's, it, there's no there's no historical marker in the text that tells us, oh, this happened during the reign of this king back in the day, right? And so we kind of have to just rough guess exactly when it happens. It's it's pre Mosaic covenant, and so this, it's just a hard book to wrap your head around in general. And then um, getting to your point, why, why don't we hear a lot about the 29th chapter of Job? As we look at Job as a whole, you know, there's a lot of different ways um, that Bible commentators look at Job. Maybe one of the primary ones is as a theodicy, you know, why does God allow suffering? Right. And, and, it's, and I would agree that's probably the main thrust of Job for a student of the book. Um, and so th- the bulk of the book, you have an introductory section or prologue, as most people would call it. Then you have... Um, you know, 20 some odd chapters in there of dialogue between Job and his friends, which gets to be repetitive and frustrating and depressing to hear about. And then you, you move into chapter 29. And as soon as 29 is done, you move into the resolution of the book and the epilogue. Which is, okay, what, you know, how, how does God bring this around between himself and Job on a personal level? And, and what does God do with Job in his situation to kind of wrap things up? And, and sandwiched between all of that is one chapter, chapter 29, which I think is the pivotal chapter of the entire book of Job because it's where everything turns around that. I mean, it's, it's a literal pivot. And it's really as Job gets done, he's, you know, his life has been wrecked. He, he's having this conversation with his friends who weren't great friends necessarily um, in, in retrospect around, hey, you know, why has all this happened to you? Chapter 29 is him reflecting back on and looking kind of in a, from a sense of longing. What was life like before this happened to me? Right, he's reflecting back on what you and I would call the good old days or the prime of his life, um, and that's really the, where the title of my book comes from. Is is verse four in there when he refers to it as the prime of his days? Um, and I'll just say, and I'll let you you know dive into a couple more questions, but that that piqued my interest on a personal level, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But I I, I also thought that's an intriguing point because Job is is. He's referenced in a way not many people in, in Scripture are. He was the most revered person in his day by society around him and by God. And so the prime of his days is something to be studied, right? If, if you can ch- check both of those the boxes. The prime of primes. It's the, mean, exactly. He, he had a, and I, I say it later on in the book, his, his prime is more prime than ours will ever be. Right. So why wouldn't we be curious about that? Yeah. So let's step back a second and just orient people who are unfamiliar with Job. Mm-hmm. I mean, so give us give us a cliff notes on Job. Yep. Um, you mentioned the timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so bring people up to speed on Job. Just the quick yep. cliff notes of what happened with him. Yeah. So Job Job lived in what we you know Bible commentators would call the patriarchal period, right? He's probably a contemporary of Abraham ish. We don't know exactly for sure. Which but in, time out on that? Yeah. One of the things that people are learning if they're following us in the Bible overview on our podcast is that the books of the Bible 
are not laid out chronologically, right? So, so Job ends up way down the line in mm-hmm. the Old Testament when you're flipping through your Bible, yeah. but historically, I mean, it's it'd be in Genesis, it, yeah, yeah, it's way up contemporary with, with Genesis, yeah. Go. So, so super early on, and, and Job was a guy who lived in what we'd call the Fertile Crescent. If you remember, you know, you know, junior high social studies, right? Part of the part of the Middle East there, what we call modern day Jordan, and he was. If you wrap up like the richest people you can think of, like Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, the Elon Musk, all those guys, put all the wealth their wealth together, it still wouldn't equal what Job had. He he was the tycoon of his day, the cattle baron of his day. He had it all together. He had a beautiful, healthy, large family. Um, and he was a man that God revered um, as, as someone who walked upright and blameless before him, right? I mean, he had it together as much as anybody has ever had it together in, until Christ came. Um, and so that's, that's Job in a nutshell until um, we find Satan taking a front to this, right? He's, this is the guy that Satan's had the least luck with in, 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 in prowling around the earth and trying to wreck lives. And so he goes <coughs> to God and says, hey, says, hey no wonder this guy's as successful as he is. He's, he's, you've given him an ace in every hand he's been dealt. Um, let, let me poke at him a little bit, and we'll see how faithful he truly is. And so this divine uh, wager goes on between God. God allows Satan to do it and, and with a, a couple of caveats that, hey, do your worst, but you can't kill him. And so where we get to Job 29, fast forward a little bit, is um, Satan takes a wrecking ball to his life. He kills all of his family except his wife. Um, all of his wealth is taken from him. He loses all of his health. He's afflicted with full body boils. He's, he's penniless in the ashes of his house and, and, and picking scabs away with like broken shards of pottery and just uh, complete depression as down as anybody can be. So it's the biggest reversal of fortunes in the Bible probably. Um, and so that's where we find Job in chapter 29, looking back on what life was like before Satan took a wrecking ball to it. Let me uh, go in a direction that I, any chance I get to undergird the authority and the reliability of scripture, I want to do that because we got plenty of people, sadly, even under the banner of Christianity that are chipping away at the authority and the reliability of scripture. As you talk about this, it sounds like you believe this happened for real. Absolutely. This is, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. And this is one of the things I appreciate about this podcast, man. So I did a little homework before I came here. I listened to probably three-fourths of the sessions you put out thus far. And 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 if I point a personal privilege, I've seen Matt in a, in a lot of settings, college ministry, director of Cedar Falls Bible Conference. This might be your sweet spot, Matt. You think so? I do. Take, wow. Take encouragement in that. Wow. Um, Thanks. But, but one of the things I appreciate about your podcast and what your ministry is trying to do is you guys cling to the inerrancy of the Bible. And so when you say that question, Mark, do you believe this actually happened? Yes, I believe this is a historical record of the inspired Word of God. Joe mm-hmm. was a real man who really lived, who really had these things happen to him. Yeah, that's cool. And so what, what would you say to somebody who maybe has always thought because they went to a humanities class at the University of Northern Iowa or who knows where, that this is just some metaphor and it's, we're supposed to learn some lesson about good and evil? You kind of mentioned that mm-hmm. earlier, but yeah. um, what would you say to encourage someone like that to take this more um, at face value? That's a great question because people struggle with that all the time. In fact, we're going to have um, – it, it's really interesting you say that um, today, Matt. So – you know, people go do that. I sat in those classes, those humanities classes and at a secular institution and, and heard all that stuff. I would tell those people, do your homework. Mm-hmm. Don't don't take what uh, your professors or really any authority says at face value. Um, do your homework and dive into the historical record to see how historically accurate are ancient texts. 
Yeah. The Bible versus other ones that we take as, yep. as you know, and not to use a pun here, but we take as gospel things like Homer's Odyssey, um, you know, writings of Plato, the Republic, things like that. Uh, I think you'll find the the Bible to be uh, a reliable witness. The other thing I'll say with that, so I'm going to I'm going to plug another person's book while I'm here. So I actually just went to TJ's Christian Bookstore here in town. Oh, cool! To pick up, um, my wife and I are hosting two college students from Central College this year. It's just kind of an outreach that our church does. Mm-hmm. And one of the books I wanted to buy as kind of an end-of-the-year summer reading gift for them is a book called Surviving Religion 101 uh, by Professor Michael Kruger. He's on, he's on staff at the Reformed Theological Seminary, where I, did, where I did my seminary work. And it's really – it comes from – I think his oldest daughter might be going off to college this year, or maybe she just did in the fall. Wow. And it's, it's from a personal place where he writes about that very experience, going to college as a Christian person and encountering authorities who don't believe in the veracity of the Bible. Um, and, and how do you reconcile and wrestle with that? And it's a tremendous work um, that I think speaks to not only to college kids, but to all of us. Yeah, that's great stuff. I'm going to promote the Cedar Falls Bible Conference right now for a second, then we're going to dive back into this. So the Cedar Falls Bible Conference is a 100-year-old conference this year. We're going to celebrate our 100th celebration conference between July 31st and August 7th of 2021. And like Mark was saying, we believe in the inerrancy of scripture. We bring in speakers and preachers who have morning and evening sessions, kids programming. It's all free. And we want to invite you to join us at the Cedar Falls Bible Conference, not just at this year's conference, but we're increasing the number of events that we're going to be having out there. Michael W. Smith is going to be in town May 15th, which this might not be published by then. Uh, We'll have other concerts and things going on. We're moving toward a model that is more of a year-round ministry, and we're hoping to kind of shoot toward kind of the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove. Have you ever been out there? I have not. Asheville, North Carolina. I've heard great things. but Their schedule's chock full of great retreats seminars, conferences, concerts, and uh, that's where we're headed. So thanks to the Cedar Falls Bible Conference, which you can see more about at cedarfallsbibleconference.com. And uh, back to the interview here with Mark. So as I started reading this book, Mark, um, and I'm going to reference something on page four, you talk about, and this is in your prologue, you're kind of setting the stage for this, and you're asking some reflective questions that maybe everybody Mm. at some level asks. What happened to the good old days? Were they ever going to come back? And what did the Bible have to say about situations like this, where I seem to have had a prime in my life that seems to have been taken away? And as I read some of that, Mark, I thought, and you you alluded to this already, but I want to have you share more about it. Like, something's going on in this guy's life who wrote this that is making him think about these things. You must have had some experiences that led you to this place where you're reading and looking at and studying and then ultimately writing about Job's experience mm-hmm. of having his prime taken away. So like, what was going on in your life uh, personally or relationally or vocationally or whatever it was to kind of set the stage for this book? Yeah. So, yeah, it does come from, you know, it really is about reflection. And I think I I put it in the book, you know, unless you're pretty young or have led a really charmed life, all of us come to that juncture at some point, right? We look back when things seem to be better. And so I would say I was feeling that in a very acute form here several years ago. And so my wife and I, uh, we met um, after after college at a church in the Des Moines area. And uh, we were li- got married, li- we're living down there. And what I'll tell people was we were, we were living in Norwalk, which is a suburb just south of Des Moines. 
we were both doing the commuter thing. We were both working in West Des Moines, and we were going to church in, in Indianola, which is another suburb even further south of Des Moines. And so what we found was it's difficult to build community when your your work community, your um, your your church community, and your residential community don't overlap. Right? It's just it's just tough. And so we were looking to make a change where at least two of the three of those could kind of come together. And so, um, long story short, we we, uh, we came across an opportunity to move uh, to Pella, Iowa, which is about an hour southeast of, of Des Moines. For people to listen to, a uh, small rural community has a uh, my, our, our link there is my wife went to college there. Central College is the college that's there in town. And so we moved there, excited that all three things would would overlap, right? Hopefully we can find a church in town. I'm gonna, we're going to work and live in the community, and we can really kind of just build. Community. Instead of being kind of spread out all and over, instead the place. of kind of just you know kind of yeah trying to you know you know uh, pull things together that don't necessarily fit together. And so we we moved there and really hoping for, you know, hey, this is going to be where we hit our stride as a young couple with a young family. Uh, we had our, our oldest uh, was about two years old at the time. We actually moved to Pella not knowing that we were pregnant with our youngest. And so just hopeful for what life had in store. Fast forward 18 months. Okay. So we've been there about a year and a half. I, I'll never forget. I was driving home one day from work and it's not a long drive because it's a small town, but um, I, I was driving home in tears because everything we had hoped for had not come to fruition. And so what I mean by that was, um, you know, we were, we were there. Um, while we were down there, my wife's father had been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And so we found ourselves serving really as the primary caregivers for a terminal, terminally ill cancer patient who lived an hour away. And so that was difficult. We were trying to do that while raising a toddler and a newborn at the same time. Uh, my youngest son, whom I adore, uh, only slept through the night once in his first year of life. And, you know, parents that are, are listening to this are nodding their heads, <laughs> right? Um, and there's, there's some folks who, you know, after six weeks, their kid's a great sleeper, and I, I try not to be bitter <laughs> when I talk to those people. Um, so, I mean, I was waking up every day exhausted. So was my wife. We're trying to raise young kids. We're trying to care for a terminally ill uh, parent. Um, and on top of all that, maybe the thing that, that in some respects hurt the most is we we really had not built much in the way of relationship. I, I can tell you uh, in, in the first three years that we lived in that community that I had not made a friend yet, which was really foreign to me because every other place I'd lived in my life, every other season of life, uh, making friends came very naturally and easy. And so I was incredibly lonely. I was tired. I was frustrated. Uh, we were sad because of the, some of the situations. And so in doing that, um, you know, one of the thing, one of the many reasons that I, I pursued seminary um, coursework was that you know, hopefully by the end of that program, I would be equipped to prescribe the right biblical text for what I was going through in life. And so, in going through this, I prescribed Job because Job, among other things, I think is one of the most empathetic books in the Bible because no one's had it tougher except for Christ, yeah. right? And so I was like, okay, life is hard. I want to go read about you know somebody else who had it tough, and and I'd read through Job seven, eight, nine, ten times in, in the course of my life, you know, reading through the Bible. But you know this, for anybody who's been a Christian for a while, sometimes you'll read over a text you've seen 10, 20 times before, and all of a sudden it will hit you like a sledgehammer right between the eyes. And Job 29.4 was that for me. And, it, and it's the verse that talks about, Job says, you know, he looks, he's looking back on what life looked like before Satan took a sledgehammer to it. And he says, as I was in the prime of my days. And it was the exact phrase that I'd been turning over in my own head for wow. the last several months. Hey, what happened to the prime of my days? Because this is not it, and I can't see the light of when it's coming back. So did you literally, that just came to you, like why were you in Job 29.4? 
Um, it was just, it, I was just reading through Job. So, and I was like looking for, for scriptural empathy in this really difficult season of life. And it just happened to be in that chapter. And it was just that phrase. It was a phrase that God had already had been rolling around in my brain. The prime of my days was like, what happened to the prime of my life? And is it ever coming back? And then I read about Job who, who, who went through the exact same thing, had the exact same thought and sentiment. And, and I was like, there's something here. There's something I need to dive into in detail. Mm-hmm. So, just a brief outline of this. It's a pretty simple book in terms mm-hmm. of the outline. Uh, you, you pick apart what were the prime of Job's days, what, yep. what contributed to the prime of his days. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is in no particular order, I don't think. Maybe this is the order that you wrote them in. It's, it's be the order that Job mentions them in. So uh, friendship with God. Yep. And then the presence of children. Yep. Material wealth. Mm-hmm. And then honor. Correct. A seat at the... A seat in the square is how he says it. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, before we get into that, I want you to kind of hang some flesh on that outline Mm -hmm. for us. But um, you're 40 years old. Correct. You just turned 40. Just turned 40 in January. And so um, is it like the stuff that you were wrestling with, would you categorize it as midlife crisis stuff or was it just different? It was different. It It wasn't, you know, I don't think it was a... You know, hey, I'm at the middle of life and I'm at a crossroads and, you know, I'm trying to reach back and relive my youth, but also kind of be an adult. It wasn't anything like that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, a, it was, I mean, I, I had not made any huge mistakes at that point in time, Matt. Like mm-hmm. there was, there was nothing I could point back and say, oh man, if I hadn't done that, life would have turned out better. I kind of, I kind of followed the rules. I kind of done what you, you typically would do to have success or to, you know, build community and just, Life just kept throwing curveballs mm-hmm. that that we were not prepared for, and I don't think anybody could have been prepared for. Mm-hmm. And and so that is that's really where we're and, and similar to Job, right? I mean, life was at its zenith, and out of almost nowhere, all this happens to him, mm-hmm. and and it's it's out of his control, and all he can do is weather it. Now I'm going to ask you a personal question. Maybe mm-hmm. we have to edit this out. I don't know, but mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll, we'll give it a shot. So I'm trying to imagine you feeling the way that you did. That drive home mm-hmm. and coming across Job and where is the prime of my days? And you're married. Correct. And and so like your spouse is going like, well, aren't you happy with me? Or like, you know, I imagine like um, somebody asking these kind of deep existential questions mm-hmm. and the people around them going, well, what are, what are we, chopped liver, your kids, your wife, uh it's a little bit easier to imagine a, a vocation or even lack of community. That's kind of out there. Right. But there's like an in-here-ness to this, like at home. For sure. Well, the, the blessing in this, the silver lining in this for me, Matt, is that as lonely as that season of life felt, um, I, I, was, I did walk through it with my best friend. And so my wife and I, it's not like she wasn't experiencing this as well, right? It's not like, right. oh, Mark's just having a tough time because we're, yeah. you know, career's not working out the way he would hope or, or whatever it may be, or he's having trouble finding friends in church. She was experiencing all of the same difficulties, right? It was yeah. her, her dad that we're, we're caring for at a distance. Um, she was a stay-at-home mom in a new town with no relationships with a toddler and, and, a, and you know, a tough pregnancy to work through. Yeah. Um, and so she's experiencing all this along with me. And so when I came home in tears saying, hey, I think maybe we made a mistake or I don't, I don't know what, what, what the exit looks like for this, mm-hmm. um, she was right there alongside with me. And, and it's been an incredible uh, support and an empathetic ear to listen to that. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Dive into the kind of the outline or the, the overview or hang some flesh on that outline of, of 
So it, it boils down to so I, I, that phrase, right? Job 29, 4, is, as I was in the prime of my days, it makes you think, okay, what, what's coming next here, right? So here's a guy um, who's looking back on, you know, what life looked like in its prime. And then he's, he goes on to enumerate what his prime was like. The rest of Job chapter 29 is all about what Job's prime looked like before Satan got a hold of him. And so I, anybody who's, who's curious about either worldly success or how to please God should be interested in that content because he lays out, hey, this is what my prime looked like. And as we, we just spoke about, his prime was more prime than yours and I will ever be, right? And so as, as you dive into the rest of chapter 129, I pulled out, you know, four key things that Job, you know, th- these are the hallmarks of what prime living looks like as a Christian, as a God-fearing person, right? And the first one he mentions is the friendship of God. Right, huge deal, huge subject. I spent an entire chapter, and basically I, the rest of the book, I, we're doing a chapter on each one of these. So the friendship of God being number one, number two being the presence of His children, and that's easy for us to gloss over because this is a guy who feels very distant. You know, it's a biblical text, it's ancient, it's hard to know exactly when he lived or relate to him. But this is a guy who lost all ten of his children. I mean, that would that would crush most of us, right? Uh, and so he misses them. Um, not only that, you know. All of his material wealth, and you know, and we're not, you and I, Matt, see very, very eye to eye on this. We are completely anti prosperity gospel in, in our ministry outlook, our theology, and our doctrine. And I, and I, yep. I speak to that because I want to make sure we cover that in a balanced manner. Yep. But everybody can say that, hey, life is a little easier when you've got a little more material margin, right? Mm-hmm. And so Job is looking back on the loss of that as well um, and saying, hey, you know, not, not only that, but now I'm now I'm penniless. It's not it's not that I'm you know no longer rich, as I have nothing. Yeah. Okay. And then lastly, he talks about, and actually he spends the most the most amount of scripture, the most verses talking about his loss of what he calls the seat in the square, right? His respected place in his community. And I wrap that with one word. If you if you read how he describes that in the rest of twenty nine, I sum that up as honor. He, he had a life that was, um, it was filled with honor, him showing honor and him receiving honor. And all of that had gone away. So we're not going to necessarily, like, you reread your book. But I do want to dive into each one of these sure. things a little bit. Um, the section on God friend, I thought that this was a very interesting thing. Talk, talk about a little more what is a friend of God or a God friend. Right. So that's one thing that's it's sometimes, I think it depends a little bit on our background as to how easy it is to wrap our head around that, depending on maybe kind of what kind of faith background we grew up in. Some of us, for that's, that's a fairly easy concept to latch onto. And for others of us, you know, we, we tend to think of God as more God the creator or, or God the judge or, you know, whatever it may be. And he seems more distant, right? He's, he's other. He's not like us. And God is truly holy. That's part of his personality who he is. But the thing that I think can blow some people's minds, God desires to be our friend. He doesn't desire to be an acquaintance. He doesn't desire to be just your Lord. He, requ- he, he desires friendship with us. The God of the universe desires friendship with us. And it's a deeper level of friendship than the best friendship you can experience here on earth. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's mind-blowing. I think uh, that when, you know, when near the end of his ministry, when he, when he re- referred to his disciples as friends, I think that probably took them by surprise. Um, a little bit, um, you know. Up until that point, they'd always referred to him as teacher or rabbi, right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, Christ is like, "No, I, I consider you to be friends." 
Yeah. Uh, and I think about like, even back to my college days, you know, I would never say that of a, of a professor, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, some I liked more than others, but I, I wouldn't call them friend. Right. Um, and all, this, this is the sort of relationship he desires. It was really interesting. In pages 24 and 25, you talk about the sovereignty of God over our friendships. Mm. And I've always, I'm a big fan of the sovereignty of God, but I had never considered, you go through a series of questions about just if one little thing is different, Mm -hmm. like you're in a completely different group of friends. For sure. You marry someone completely different. I mean, and you know, I guess Jen and I have talked about that with our kids about how unlikely in a sense that it was that Mm -hmm. we were the ones that came together. And then when you, when you understand the, the, the fruit of that was these four kids that we have who would have not even been in existence. Yeah. If Jen and I, these random obscure things, and and so I thought it was great to uh, just think through. You methodically kind of led us through an exercise, or just kind of some thoughts mm-hmm. in the book uh, to consider how even our best friends and the most influential people in our lives are uh, an act of God. I mean, for sure. If you had most of your best friends, or your spouse for that matter, if you had met them, even you know just one of those questions, if you had met them at a different season of your life. Would they have had the same relationship with you or a relationship at all with you? The answer is probably no. So tie that back to the God-friend principle that you were talking about. So God, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer to your point about the sovereignty of God. God chooses the, the time and the manner in which he's going to initiate a friendship with us. Right, you have some people who come to faith at an early age. I was I was only fourteen when I gave my life to Christ, and other people do it on their deathbeds. Mm-hmm. But God chooses that time frame and the and the, and the the circumstances surrounding how the two of you are going to get together. Mm-hmm. That's great. So you talk also at the bottom of page uh, twenty seven or throughout just about developing our friendship with God. And I've always this is maybe not even a point you're trying to make in your book, but kind of a side thought that I had that. You talked about to the degree that we share with God, it develops our friendship with God. Mm -hmm. You know, on the next page, 28, you talk about David's friendship with God can be traced directly to the amount of his heart that he was willing to reveal. Mm -hmm. But down back on 27, uh, you you talk about one of the inhibitors to developing our relationship with God is this idea that he knows everything anyway. So mm-hmm. what do you mean share with God? And and I struggle with that. Yeah. I always have, have been quick to admit my prayer life is not phenomenal. And one of the reasons it's not is because my prayers end up basically being, okay, dear Lord, you're great. Do whatever you want. Amen. Mm-hmm. Because he knows uh, Romans 8. I was just teaching some, some high school kids this where it says we don't know what to pray for. Mm-hmm. So the Spirit prays for us or intercedes for us in our weakness. And basically the Holy Spirit retranslates what we pray, yeah. which isn't what we should pray, because mm-hmm. we don't know what to pray for, so that God will understand it according to his will. Mm. That's a mind-boggling idea. And it can be a killer to a prayer life in a way, and it could maybe inhibit it, this sharing with God that you're talking about. So now counsel me a little bit. Yeah. Help, help me out with that. Well, we talk, we talk about, you know, other places in Scripture, you know, David is referred to, and that's, you know, you're speaking to a, a passage about David there. David's referred to as a man after God's own heart. I think a big part of that was because he was re- willing to reveal his heart to God. And to your point, God knew already, but you think about your earthly relationships, and that's kind of, you know, the, what I use in the book. I use kind of how our earthly relationships are formed. Mm-hmm. To and, and God, you know, that all points to, you know, what our vertical relationship is supposed to look like with God. In our earthly relationships, if I don't share my heart with one of my friends, the depth of that relationship is going to be awfully shallow, 
right? It's no different than God. Yes, he knows it all, but he He wants to go deeper with us. Mm-hmm. He wants us to open up. And so, because it's a two-way street, right? I think the process of us divulging our heart to God allows him to, to pour more into us and help us know more of who he is, right? Mm-hmm. Because, because relationships are two-way. Mm-hmm. So talk about how you do that with God. Yeah. You know, I, part of it is, you know, and I think part of it is, you know, what, what are the other facets of your prayer life too, right? It's, it's difficult, you know, you can't get deep with someone, you know, at a, at a rock concert, right? You may go to a rock concert with your good friend, but like, we're mm-hmm. not, we can't reveal a lot of it to each other there, right? So what, mm-hmm. what is the environment of your prayer look like? Look like, do you get off into solitude with God and take the time to actually get real with him? Mm-hmm. Um, do you, have you, have you made it robotic? It, it's tough if we go through the same rote prayers day in and day out to get deep with him. Um, and then also I, you know, one of the things that I'm blessed with, uh, I help co-lead a weekly prayer meeting at our church. And, and one of the great things I think is to be encouraged is, is praying corporately. I think that's something the American church has a hard time with. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you pray corporately, um, it, it's impossible not to get encouraged by the prayer life of others. You talk about, hey, my prayer life is weak, or I feel like it's, it's, it's here and there and that sort of thing. Well, go hang around people who've been Christians for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and listen to them pray. Mm. Some of that's going to rub off. That's great advice. Yeah. That's good. You talk uh, later on about feeling close to God, uh, maintaining a friendship with God. And this is another just kind of self-disclosure. Feeling close or feeling distant, I don't know if anyone else listening to this or even you can relate to this. That's not even a thing for me. I, I don't. I feel like uh, one of the things that reading this revealed to me is that my relationship with God is very... I don't want to say heady, but kind of. It's like I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ through faith in him. And I know because of that that I have great confidence to stand before God. And uh, whether I'm having a bad day or a good day, my standing in the Lord doesn't change because I'm secure in my faith and in Christ's sacrifice and his righteousness and my penalty has been paid. And you even hear that if you ever listen to the Daily Dose. I'm talking about that all the time, mm-hmm. laying out the gospel. Um, but this idea of feeling close or feeling distant, I just don't relate to it much. Mm-hmm. Talk talk to me about feeling close and distant from your perspective. Well, I, I would say part of that depends on your personality, right? How God wires us. Some, yeah, of, for sure. some of us are more emotional than others. We, yep. just, we just process the world around us more emotionally than we do intellectually. And so when we talk about feeling close, it's probably what most of us mean, right? And so if we're, if we're more cerebral, you know, maybe that, that doesn't feel like as much of a struggle. However, the most cerebral of us may, may have intellectual doubts or concerns, or all of a sudden we get, you know, uh, in, in an apologetics um, framework, you know, we get hit with something we can't answer. That's where our struggle may come in, right? Mm-hmm, where we may mm-hmm. not we may not feel quite as close to God. And so I hope people don't get too hung up on the emotional aspect of that language. Yeah, perfect. Great. Anything else uh, that you want to talk about is related to the God friend, the, the friend of God, that, that first component of the prime of Job's days, the mm-hmm. fact that he had a, a, a relationship with God. I, I think the the one thing I would want readers to get from that part of the book is there's a reason Job lists that first mm-hmm. as the thing he misses from the prime of his life. Okay, and 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 I'll be clear, God's friendship never went away. Right, it just felt like it had. Right, um, and so that's another important point to make. But like of all of the things we talk about, you know, people look back and it's funny. I've taught this material before in Bible studies, and I ask and I ask the question, "Hey, what were the hallmarks of the prime of your life?" Looking back on your life, few people say the friendship of God. 
But yeah. that, but that was Job's the first thing he missed, right? Which is important. And don't you think, like, man, America? I love America. I'm, I'm glad I was born here. Um, I mean, this is probably the richest, most comfortable life that anyone in history has ever had. I mean, for sure, as a general rule, people yeah. that live mm-hmm. here. But don't you think that when the average American and even maybe the average evangelical American thinks of the prime of their days? They have a tendency to overlook friendship with God as well. For sure. Well, and I, I go into it a little bit in the chapter as well. We, we, we've lost to a large degree, and it gets tougher the older we get. Some research is out there. We, we've lost the capacity to make friendship. Um, you know, people out there, I'm, I'm one of the oldest of the millennial generational cohort, right? And a lot of the social science around there says we're the loneliest generation because, you know, with the advent of social media and other things, we're losing the ability to make those relational connections. And so it's no wonder that friendship with God is also maybe takes a back burner in our society when our horizontal friendships are having a hard time. The second thing that you talk about, that Job talks about, that you build on in terms of what helped build the prime of his days is uh, the presence of children. You call this chapter consecrated kids. I'll tell you this chapter more than any of the other ones. I was amening all the time. I don't know how you mark amens in your book, but I, I do I do exclamation points. Mm-hmm or double underlines, mm-hmm. there's a lot of that in here. I have a lot of strong uh, opinions about the importance of why and how we raise our kids or even the role of kids, and it, I think we're very much on the same page here. Before we go into some of that, I'm going to just ask you to talk about what you wanted people to get out of this, and I might pull a few things out. Mm-hmm. What I want to start with, because I don't want to forget this, is... What do you say to people who don't have children? Can, oh. can they not have the prime of their days or what? Well, n- no. First and foremost, Christ didn't have you know biological children here on earth. And so you disqualify him from having a prime of life if that's the case. We can't do that. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty uh, – that, that shoots a hole in a lot of our, of our doctrine if we do that. You know, I, I actually I, – I cover that at the end of that chapter because as I, as I, was, as I was writing that and – I, and I have a little bit of – you know I've gone through some of that. I didn't get married until later in life, at least as far as the Midwest is concerned. I was in my late 20s before I got married. I didn't have kids until I was in my early 30s. And so I've lived a lot of life without kids. Um, and so as I, was, as I was writing that chapter, I was like, hey, I need to speak – to the people who don't have kids and maybe never will, you know, what are they to get out of this? We, we are all called, Christians, we are all called to be spiritual parents, right? Uh, the Apostle Paul didn't have kids, but he calls Timothy his son in the faith multiple times in Scripture. And, and our spiritual kids, those we're called to, to mentor and disciple, need all the same things that our biological kids need from those of us who are parents. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very well. And the way that you talked about Christ not having kids, you also mentioned Paul didn't have kids. Mm-hmm. And I've been in churches in the past where it comes to be Mother's Day or Father's Day, and we sit around the table, we're planning a worship service, and we sit around the table and go, you know, we got to be careful about honoring mothers and fathers because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings who aren't mothers or fathers. I thought the way you dealt with it was just kind of unapologetic. And mm-hmm. of course, of course, there's a role for you yeah. to be a parent if you don't have children of your own. Okay, let's get on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like we don't need to dwell on that and be afraid we're going to hurt people's feelings. Just deal with it up front. Yeah. Paul and Jesus didn't have kids. There's plenty of ways that you can have a parenting role, mm-hmm. a father role for somebody who's not your kid. That's what Paul had with yeah. Timothy. And then get on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good. So what, what else from this? 
really the, the, the crux of the chapter around, and the reason I use consecrated kids, so we, so we rewind, right? So he misses his kids, right? And so it begs the question, when he did have the presence of his kids, what did, what did Job do with them, right? And so we, if we go back to Job, you know, chapter one and two, it tells us that he, he did this continually is the key word in scripture. He would, he would every, every week when they, his kids got together to have dinner in one of each other's houses, he would get up on the off chance that they had sinned and consecrate his kids. And that's not a word, that's a, that's a total Christianese word, right? Consecrate. And so consecrate, we just simply define as setting something or someone apart for a holy purpose. Mm-hmm. That's what he did continually, Scripture mm-hmm. tells us. So he continually did things strategically to set his kids apart for a holy purpose. And the great news is there's all sorts of other examples in the Bible of what that's supposed to look like. Yeah, that's great. So there are a few things in here that I felt like if you weren't writing this publicly in a book, you might have been even a little sharper than you were, a, a little <laughs> a little more blunt. But I could certainly read between the lines. Mm-hmm. Talk about – I thought this was so good. Talk about – the value that our culture, and again, I don't mind pagan people being this way, because people who don't trust God, people mm-hmm. who don't trust Christ, they shouldn't prioritize consecrated kids. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't expect them to. What drives me absolutely nuts is when churches and Christians play more in line with the way the world does it than the way the Bible calls them to. Mm-hmm. And so this whole idea of priority and uh, career and stuff and hobbies. Now I'm guilty of this, right? Like I like to do what I like to do. Mm-hmm. And my wife is at times accused my life of never having changed from the day we married <laughs> until today. <laughs> like you're still just living the dream and I'm here working my butt off. Mm-hmm. And I mean, mm-hmm. she's never accused me quite that sharply, but sure. there's probably an element of truth to that. So, um, but just this idea that are we really serious about this command that God gives us mm-hmm. to consecrate our kids. Mm-hmm. Talk yeah. about that. You know, it, it, you know, Scripture also tells us that children are a blessing, and so it makes you begs the question: Do we treat them as a blessing? Yeah. Right? Do we, do we treat them as a gift? Uh, as we treat, do we treat them as something to be stewarded because they're not our own? Uh, right. They belong to God, and so you know that's that's an important thing. And so I've the great. What's made it easy for me is I had a tremendous example. I had um, my, my earthly dad, uh, just he just passed away actually this in January, a few months back. Oh. And so we haven't talked about that, Matt. No, but, I didn't know that. Um, but, you know, he was a tremendous dad. Uh, he was one of my heroes in life. And one of the reasons he was is because he sacrificed things to spend time and invest in my brother and myself, mm-hmm. right? Um, my dad was a very successful high school basketball coach. Hmm. Um, and if he really wanted to double down, he probably could have coached at a bigger school or maybe even on to go coach college or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he came to realize as his boys were growing older that his time with us was limited. Mm-hmm. And in, in, he was going to invest that in us. And so right before I got it, I think junior high, he he resigned as the head basketball coach at our high school. He'd been there 20 years. He'd mm-hmm. won over one over 300 games. Um, And he did it largely because he wanted to spend that time um, with my brother and myself, either, either coaching us or, you know, know, doing other things, taking us fishing, whatever that looked like. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew that I was valued, right? Um, That's a big part of that. And you and I've had a discussion about that. when we got together a couple months ago to talk about uh, today's session, you know, know, taking your kids around to a ballpark. One of the beautiful things about that is it's going to give your son a picture that, hey, he's valued by his father. And what what a great picture that is for when he gets older about, hey, this is how valued your heavenly father looks at you, looks mm-hmm. at you too. And so that, that can take a lot of ways, shapes, and forms. Another thing I thought about was, you know, we, I talk about this all the time with my brother on the phone, just, you know, how much 
um, not only our own hobbies and desires get in the way, but like the over-programming of our kids in our society and yeah. just what that can look like. And I am not against, I tell you, I am not against drama camp or little league. I'm actually going to drive straight from here to go coach my son's little league game back mm-hmm. in Pella tonight. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not against any of that stuff, but the, the stuff that, you know, worries me a little bit is when you have five and six year olds who are dual sport athletes in the same season. Um, but, and then, you know, not to be a legalist, but then they're not, they're not making it to church on Sunday, you know, over half the time because they're at tournaments or, um, or that sort of thing. Is that what consecration is supposed to look like? Right. I'm guessing no. And again, there's everybody's situation is different, but I think we should all sit sit down and think seriously about that. Yep, yep. That's so well said. We're going to do a podcast on here at some point. I've got a couple people in mind who'd be great at it, where we're really going to call parents who proclaim faith in Christ to do. I mean, specifically youth sports differently. And that doesn't mean don't do them, mm-hmm. but that means do them in a way I don't ever want my kid you're going to coach like it's it's mm-hmm. ironic your dad got out of coaching to spend time with you. Right. Weird thing at our Christian school that the kids the kids go to school at home and they part-time at the Christian school and uh an opening came up in the head coaching role and so I said yes to that so that I could spend time with my kids. Mm-hmm. So I mean there's different but ways. But it's strategic, right? Exactly. And and you're doing that in this and obviously in that setting is a little bit different, but it's it's a setting in which the whole the purpose of the whole institution is to consecrate children. That's so, right. And that doesn't mean that if you're if you're coaching basketball at a public wrong. school, you're no, absolutely right. not. That's fantastic. We need great influences there, but Where's the priority? And, and that's the thing is a lot of times people don't know the priority and the outcome might look the same on the outside. Mm. But what we need to really be challenged with is is the priority. And so anyway, we're going to do a podcast about that um, because, I mean, youth sports is out of control. Mm-hmm. And I would say a large percentage of the parents who claim to be Christians are out of control with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe just a teaser for whenever that podcast comes. And I guarantee it'll be controversial Mm -hmm. because um, this is hard stuff. Another thing that's controversial that I want to mention, and and I wish my wife was here because she could say this for herself. It's going to sound different, me representing her. But this whole notion that motherhood is not an honorable role. Mm. Like, like, um, and again, I'm not saying that women who work are sinning or anything like that, but there's an awful lot of that that is driven by, I need to go do something significant. Mm. And being a mom isn't significant. And that's just an outright lie, right? Yeah. From the enemy. I mean, that, I tell people, you know, somebody, I read a book somewhere that the four toughest jobs in America are president of the United States, the CEO of a large hospital, the president of a big university, oh. or, or, the, or the pastor of a huge church. Oh. Or the, are the four oh. toughest jobs okay, in America. I got it, got it. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree. That's a, I think that's a pretty good list. I tell them this, though. The most important job yep. in America is a stay-at-home mom. I totally agree. I, I totally agree. Mother's Day is right around the corner. Yeah. And I, I try to tell my wife that all the time. You mentioned that in here. Um, was that the Consecrated Kids chapter where you're talking about intentionally telling your spouse. Oh yeah. Was that this? So it was in this chapter. So, you know, one of the things, and this goes for moms and dads, right? Yep. The, the, the pull of the world is a strong one, 
right? And and I, as a, as a as a father, and I'm the primary breadwinner in our family situation. Like, there's a constant temptation every single day to to give the 110 percent in my career. And, and here's why: most of, it's where, first of all, it's where we spend the most of our waking hours, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also, unfortunately, it's where we are most likely to receive recognition and praise for a job well done. I say in the book, if I if I if I pass on a promotion at work to spend more time with my kids or, you know, spend Wednesday nights at our church church youth group, your your praise will sound like a chorus of crickets, unfortunately. And so we need to we need to do a better job as both husbands and wives and churches in praising people for for putting their, their children and their families first. That's great. You mentioned here, and I'm trying to flip through and find it. I can't find it. But basically, you made the case that we're doing this stuff, spending time with our kids, being intentional, being strategic for the, for the purpose of something greater than just, so this baseball trip thing, Mm -hmm. we just are, like I said, we did our 27th and we started in 2014. Once in a while, my daughter uh, has been able to come with us. We're going to write a book when this is said and done. And one of the chapters I'm almost sure that's going to be in the book is going to be more than memories. Mm -hmm. And here's what drives me nuts. And I want your comment on this after I kind of tell this Mm -hmm. story. Um, I hear so many people, and again, Christians, I, I have no complaint against people who aren't Christians. I don't expect them to think like Christians, live like Christians, believe what we believe. Their lifestyle shouldn't reflect it. Why would it? Mm-hmm. I, I have no gripe with them. But my gripe is with Christians who are just going about life seemingly with the same goals as the world, without the strategy, strategery, I almost said, in honor of the (laughs) former president. Awesome. Um, And and they're just kind of going through this. And and one of the things I hear all the time when we post a a post on social media or when people hear about us going to another ballpark or something, they'll say, and and I don't want to be too picky because they don't necessarily mean what it sounds like they mean here. Um, They'll say, oh, that's great that you're making memories with your son. Mm -hmm. And I want to say like, if if this is only about making memories, then give me an F. Uh-huh. Because okay, so I made cooler memories than someone else because we traveled around the country to baseball games. But your memories are boring because all you did is go fish in the pond in your backyard. This is not about memories. No, this is about uh, fostering a relationship with my son, so that when it's time for me to speak truth into his life, I've built up capital mm-hmm. that has earned me the respect. So that when I speak truth into his life, he'll take it seriously mm-hmm. to a point that you said earlier, it, it shows my kid that he's valued and not just for the sake of being valued, but valued so that he understands that I'm trying to represent God, the father exactly as his dad. And so it kind of makes me sick when people say, oh, that's great that you're making memories with your son because it's such a low bar. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't Christians be living like to a higher standard than just making memories, having cool Facebook posts? And and uh, a cool camera roll on your phone mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, yeah. right? Like it's you know doing something for the sake of a memory isn't a sin. It's you know it's great to be able to look back on you know previous you know pleasant things in our lives and celebrate those. It's great. Um, and there's nothing wrong with having a fun Instagram account either right. <laughs> with, with great pictures of what happened. Right. But if that's as deep as we get, to your point, Matt. We've missed something there, right? We we're, we're called to a greater calling. We're called to to kingdom priorities, and and I would call you know one thing that we're I think we're really uh, at a deficit in, in our society. We're called to generational impact, not yeah. just the here and now. 
Yeah. Or not even just my lifetime. Um, and so that, that speaks to all of what you're bringing up there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, well, we'll save that for another podcast. I, I've got a lot of thoughts <laughs> about that. Um, talk about butter and oil. Butter and oil. This is a great chapter. Great. So this talks about his material wealth. Absolutely. Is by far your shortest chapter. Yeah. Well, and for a couple of reasons. One is not a lot needs to be said about it. When people, when readers read about the prime of their life, right, or, or at least get them begin to think about the prime of their life, no one needs to go searching for, hey, when I had the biggest bank account, right? That's an answer that a lot of people, if they won't give out loud, will give inside. So, <laughs> um, and so I didn't think a lot needed to be written about it, but I also didn't want to, I mean, it's, it's biblical, right? I mean, Job is in there talking about, hey, one of the things I missed from my prime is when I, I, I had, you know, wealth and abundance, right? Mm-hmm. I had all of my needs met and then some, mm-hmm. right? And so, and he uses the hyperbole, like, you know, he was a, he had, you know, huge flock of camels, a little bit different over there. You know, there's a lot of camel milk in the Middle East. And so mm-hmm. that'd be, it'd be, he'd be the example of what I tell people, you know, whatever a cattle baron would have been back in the old West here in mm-hmm. the U.S., that was him. And so, so much, you know, so much milk. Milk, that he was literally stepping in puddles of it, um, you know, so much oil from his olive trees that he couldn't get away from it. I mean, just, a, you know, embarrassment of riches. Mm-hmm. And so, and there's nothing wrong with missing that. You know, I've had, I, I tell people I have less disposable income now than I did when my wife and I were dual income, no kids, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I missed that part of that season of life. Right. That's to be, but the important thing is we have to look at this from a balanced perspective. A few verses earlier, he talks about, um, you know, that, you know, God's light was still shining the way, even in the best of times for him. Material possession will not um, safeguard you from dark times. Mm-hmm. It just won't. And, and, and Job speaks to that. So even in the best of times, even in the, in the most prime of primes, dark times will come. And, and although you know, material wealth can be helpful, it, it, you still need God through that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was blown away. I mean, I always thought, Job was rich. He had a lot of stuff, blah, blah, blah. But you kind of, until you go through it the way that you kind of laid it out in some different places, Mm -hmm. stupid rich. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a little tough to wrap our heads around because there was was no such thing as a monetary system when Job lived, right? So everybody enumerated wealth by the amount of livestock they had. Mm -hmm. And if if you look at the sheer numbers, and I even compared them. I actually did research to compare, like, what was the biggest cattle herd in Iowa right now? I think it's Mm -hmm. like 2,500 head over near Williamsburg or something like that. Wow. Like, and Job had, like, what, six, 7,000 camels? I mean, he's tripling the largest cattle herd we have in one of the most agriculturally rich regions on the planet right. back then. And that was back then. I mean, think of the herdsmen that would have taken and everything else. Totally. And, that's just, and that's, just, that's just one uh, measure of wealth that he had. Yep. And so we can't, we can't wrap our heads around it. That's good. And I, I, I'm even thinking of a guy right now in my mind, obviously I'm not going to say his name, but who's going through a pretty hard time, and he's very, very wealthy. And to your point that, uh, and, and honestly, every one of us is wealthy. That, that's another mm-hmm. kind of um, of my pet peeves is, is that here in America, we tend to say, well, I'm not part of the 1% because I only make $75,000 a year and the one percenters are gazillionaires. When you compare us to the rest of the world, I mean, we are all filthy, stinking rich. Oh, for sure. And And I think that letting that settle in on us is probably a good idea. Like I'm not middle class. I'm mm-hmm. stupid wealthy. For sure. And and uh and that doesn't protect me from bad days. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I'll just say, you know, not to, I'm going to read everything, but this is, this is scripture from Job. So in this chapter, Butter and Oil, is from Job 29, 6, which reads, When my steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, right? So talking about just 
the abundance in his life. Three verses prior, though, Job 29, 3, he, he says, when, when his, being God's lamp, shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, right? So you've got immense wealth, but also, at times, immense darkness happening yeah. simultaneously. Yeah. Okay, so just as a review, we've got a friend of God, mm-hmm. we've got the presence of children, mm-hmm. we've got immense wealth or wealth or mm-hmm. possessions or whatever, yep. and now we've got honor, a seat at the square. Yep. Talk about that. So the, really the rest, starts starting in Job 29, verse 7, really through the end of the chapter, right, which is like, I think, uh, verses maybe 26 or something like that. He spends the rest of the chapter talking about, and it starts out, when I, when I went out to the gate of the city, all right, and, and took my seat in the square. And so if you think about like our, our main street, our, you know, wherever your business district is, like he had, he had a spot on the New York Stock Exchange, right? A, a seat that said Job right there at the best spot at the table was what he had. And so he walked into places and he was immediately gr- granted with honor, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, when a president walks into the room, you hear all hail the chief, right? Mm-hmm. Job had about as close to that as you could get in mm-hmm. his day. And so he, what he's mourning is the, kind of the last pillar of his prime is this loss of honor mm-hmm. and belonging that he had in his community because now he's all alone mm-hmm. and, he's, and he's destitute. And, and one of the things that, that's kicking him when he's down is that it seems that um, no one is there to, to empathize. And the ones who, are, who start out trying to do a really bad job of it. One of the questions you asked that I thought was great, was, we were talking about this idea of honor, is, um, and you did this in several of the chapters, how can you take this thing, this principle, this criteria of prime, and think about how you are experiencing it, and, or how can you reflect that on someone else? So you ask, uh, who can I honor today? Christ, every Christian should ask that on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Who can I honor today? Yeah, And that, that was a challenge to me. Do you want have anything to say about how you process that? You know, I would start off, and I'm not going to I'm not going to dive into too much where where folks can read the book. You know, but I mentioned you know the passage when you know Christ goes back to Nazareth, right, to teach in the temple. Prophets without honor in his own hometown. Exactly, the prophets without honor in his own hometown. And then this the important part is what what's said right after that is that Christ could not do many miracles while he was there, hmm. and that was the linchpin. It was the lack of honor that that Christ received. Mm-hmm. Honor is all throughout scripture. If you look through, and I, and I list out a bunch of scriptural mm-hmm. references in here mm-hmm. about you know where commands, not just suggestions, commands for when Christians are to honor and, and who they're supposed to honor throughout scripture. It's also intriguing that in the Ten Commandments, the, fifth, the first commandment about a horizontal relationships is about honor, mm-hmm. but honoring our parents, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look at the rest of commandments six through 10, um, you know, breaking those commandments is really a failure to honor something. Mm-hmm. Right, so do not do not kill, do not murder is is you're not honoring the sanctity of life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do not steal. You're not honoring the the sanctity or of property mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. And so, honor is a huge deal. And I think we miss we miss as the church we miss out on a lot of times on the power of what God wants to do because we don't ask that question every day. Right, mm-hmm. whom can I honor today? Mm-hmm. And even if I don't feel like it, mm-hmm. it's good. When I was reading that, I I just was reviewing some of this over lunch before you came in. And I thought of a specific person who I need to go out of my way to honor, and I know it means a lot to him. And it's just good practical. That's one of the things I love about this book is it's very, um, it's got a, some theology in it. It's got some depth in it. I mean, you're going deep on a one chapter of the Bible mm-hmm. through the whole book, um, but also some very practical stuff, which was great. So for people who don't know the rest of the story, Job's honor is returned to him. Mm-hmm. Tell us that. So. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a spoiler alert, right? <laughs> Folks who are listening who have never read Job, I, ho- I hope they will. And if they get anything out of my book, I, I hope they, they open their Bibles and go through Job and spend some time there. But, you know, er- everything that Job had taken away is restored to him uh, twice as much. So twice the wealth. Uh, didn't have twice the children, but he had 10 more. And so he doubled the number of his children. Um, you know, all that sort of thing. But his, you know, there was funny, there's, it talks about, and I, I'll forget the language because it's been over a year since I've written this, um, or I think they gave Job, was it, a, was it a coin or something like that, um, there to signify his return to his seat of honor in the square. And, and he didn't need the coin because he was twice as rich as he was before. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, he he had that restored to him in that, hey, you know, uh, and it talks about it earlier in the book, you know, you know, the princes would close their mouths when he walked into the room so that yeah. he could have the last word. Like he was that honored and respected and he got that back. And I, and I think that's something that, um, that people miss a lot. In fact, you know, as I even look back in my own life, you know, sometimes the lack of what I would call community is in large portion, a, a, really a lack of honor. Right. Um, and I asked the question in the book, um, when have you felt ever as honored as Job was in this chapter? And when have you sought to make others feel as honored as Job was in Job 29? Um, what, what a difference uh, we could make as Christians or the church could make, um, not only in itself, but in, in, in society, in culture, if, if we simply asked and act, acted on those two questions every day. You talked about how you and your wife look at how Job is wrapped up as a Disney ending. Every, <laughs> right. Everything works out. Perfect. Everything works out at the end. And and we can't necessarily expect that. We certainly mm. don't see a lot of evidence in that in our lives. Talk about that. And if you don't talk about it, another thing I want to lead you to, I'll ask a question about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So to your point, yeah. Um, so everything works out in the end. It's it's a nice, neat, we wrap a bow on it. It's a Disney ending. Everybody goes home happy. Uh, Job, that, as you read that, you know, if, you, if you're a reader of the Bible and you're going through a season of loss, and you read that, and and maybe you've been struggling for a long time, right? With like, and it doesn't say how long Job was destitute. We've given we've given no chronological of of how long his season of suffering lasted. Um, you know, you're, it can be easy and and tempting to look at it and say, oh, well, I can't relate to that because hey, he had not only did everything restored, everything got twice as good as it was before for him, and I am still wallowing in this really tough situation, mm-hmm. and that, that's a hard place to be. Mm-hmm. That's um, that can feel like a hopeless place to be in life. Mm-hmm. And I think if if we if we if that's our takeaway, we miss the point of Job mm-hmm. um, because um, I, you know I spend some time in my last in in the epilogue of the book, the last chapter, talking about if you look at. Uh, a little bit deeper, some of the symbolism of Job's restoration. It's not meant to to point or promise some sort of secondary prime in our time here on earth. I hope people experience that who've had loss. I yeah. hope things come out better for them before yeah. they reach the end of their life here. Uh, but it's really meant to look at the new heavens and new earth. That's where our true prime is Don't to be, is to be lived. The names of his daughters. Absolutely. Right? So, so it's intriguing. As I was reading through the, you know, one of the great things, you know, for students of the Bible, um, pay attention to names. I'm always amazed at. I feel like our generation, Matt, people when they name their kids, I feel like their their number one goal is to name the kid with the most intriguing spelling. I, I, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, how many ways can we spell Jacob or whatever it may be, right? Um, I tell people names are important first and foremost. If look at look at your family, I tell people most people live up to their names. If they're named after somebody, mm-hmm. um, it, it's it's scary to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and names were very important in the Bible. In fact, we've got instances of of fathers renaming their sons because their mother gave them a name that they didn't want that to. 
be their legacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, names are critical. Mm-hmm. And so as, as you read through the Bible, look at the importance of names, you know, grab, grab a concordance or a commentary or a lexicon and look at the meaning of names. But as I looked at, so Job's three daughters from his second set of 10 kids of his 20 children, they're the only ones that are mentioned by name. Mm-hmm. That they're only one to the 20. There's something to that. Mm-hmm. that you know, why, why share that detail unless there's some significance mm-hmm. there? And so he goes into it there, and his, his three daughters' names, I'm going to go ahead and grab those real quick. Um, so one of them is Jemima. 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 Who, which just got canceled in the last year. I know, right? <laughs> so apparently this was first, though. This was before that whole culture came into be. But Jemima, whose name, really, you know, uh, I guess most literally translated is day. And so think about it. You know, the new Jerusalem, in the daytime, there will never be night there in the new heavens and new earth. Um, the darkness that Job had gone through is now gone. And so we talk about the darkness of hell and how that's just that's eradicated in the new heavens, new earth. His second daughter, uh, Keziah, um, and it's, it's where it's a derivative of the term cassia, which was a fragrant plant back then. And so you, you have the, we talk about, if you look at Psalm 45, um, the, you know, God has anointed you, and they're talking about uh, this foreshadowing Christ here, with the oil of, jo- of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, right? And so God, the fragrance of his righteousness is going to meet us at every turn in the new heavens. And the last one, uh, Karen Hapuk, uh, which means horn of antimony. Antimony was basically just a, um, a dark mineral they used for eyeshadow back in the day to, you know, beautify the eyes. Well, think about it. Job has had a season of life where all he did was cry. Right, I mean, just in tears. We're going to brighten the eyes here, right? And the same is going to happen for us. You know, we're going to we're going to find a place where there's no more mourning or crying or pain, and and that's in our it's in heaven. It's new heavens, and new earth, and and that's if you know that's a great description of what the prime of life feels like. We've talked about you know the the rest of the book is about the pillars of Job's prime, but that's what it's going to feel like um, when we get to heaven. And that's, that's the point of Job, I think, is to point us to that and, and, and point us to the person who's our gateway to that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great stuff. So um, you talk about season of loss, and I'm just going to share this, and then I'm going to ask you a question related to it. So 2012 was a, a crazy year for us. I was running for the state senate and ultimately lost uh, that race by a narrow margin we were expecting not to lose and i would have been in the state senate which honestly nine years later praise the lord that Mm. didn't happen um jen had a miscarriage Mm. and this might be tmi but it's really interesting this this miscarriage would not pass through it was the first trimester miscarriage so this Mm. this dead very small first trimester baby lived inside her Mm. for months it didn't live inside her. Mm-hmm. It stayed inside her. Mm-hmm. And um, she and her doctor talked, and Jen was wanting to just have this happen naturally. It never happened naturally, and so she ended up having to have a procedure. And then just shortly before the election, her dad passed away. And and so it's weird because you're in the middle of that, and it didn't feel – I mean, the Lord had us. Mm-hmm. Like, people would say, how are you guys doing this? And, like, we're fine. I mean mm-hmm. – it's like we were protected from it. But out of that, out of each loss, mm-hmm. so I lose the election, and I I basically move back into a career of ministry, mm-hmm. which has been extremely fulfilling and fruitful, and which I would have missed out on a ton of things if I had won that election. Jen's dad passing away led to a situation where we now live on the acreage that we live on mm-hmm. that we would never have had any business living on prior to that. And that's been, it's not just a, Ooh, we live on an acreage or whatever. It's been a great place for our kids and our family to, um, have some space 
kids run around. A couple of our girls enjoy animals, and you know, there's some of that, mm-hmm. and that a huge, huge blessing that has come as a direct result of that loss. Right. And then the other one would be this miscarriage. So our, we had an, another daughter who we would not have had if that baby had lived. And Judah is, I mean, a joy in our mm-hmm. family. And so, and we've all learned this in smaller ways, but 2012, because they were like right on top of each other, mm-hmm. it was just so poignant to us that these losses, and, and they don't always manifest themselves when we're going through a season of loss, they don't immediately manifest themselves as wins mm-hmm. as quickly as they did for us. But for the Lord to do that in our lives and do it in such a poignant and pronounced way so that we couldn't help but miss it, that every loss really leads to a win. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to say every. There are times when we don't experience that. Um, I've thought of a book title, and I'm not going to write this book. Maybe you want to. Called <laughs> called Winning by Losing. Mm. And and just the, there's so many wins that come out of losses. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate win, this is where I'm going, for the person of faith yeah. is the new heavens and the new earth. Right. It's. I mean, it is going to turn around. Right. You are going to be restored to your prime. Do you have any experiences from your life where you've seen some restoration like that to 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 draw a similar conclusion? Because one of my things is what's been great for me during that time is now to look and go, when I'm facing a hard thing, mm-hmm. to go, you know what? Remember what happened back there? Like the Lord's at work here. Yeah. Just because it seems like he's not, just like it seems like he's forgotten about this or he's not hearing this prayer, he's at work and he's going to do imaginably more than we can ask or imagine, whether in this life or the next. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about yeah. that. You know, I, I'll, I'll answer that two ways. So to your first question around, you know, have you, have you seen instances where God's taken something tough and, and you know, redeemed that in some way, you know, this side of heaven. Uh, you know, one example of that. So I you know, unfortunately, I, I've had a life that's been impacted to a certain degree by mental illness. I've gone through clinical depression myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's it's speaking too far out of school. So Jay Chad, who's the guy who brought us together, yeah. struggled with that as well. Yep. And, you know, in, in all of that. So and it, it's funny, the statistics here as we've gone through COVID. So as I was reading, I read a lot of social science stuff. It's kind of on the fringes of what I do for mm-hmm. a living. And then just obviously as a, as a Christian who's looking at culture. I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Um, the like I saw a stat like the the calls to like emergency hotlines for stuff like suicide prevention and stuff like that are up like 800 yeah, percent since COVID started. And so there's a real struggle out there for that. And just you know having been through some of those difficulties myself. And so one of the things I was able to do as a result of the book, right, and a book that had, would never have been written had I not gone through a tough season, right? Like I wouldn't I wouldn't even been reading Job at the time had I not gone through what we went through. Um, so I, I, in the month of November, I donated all sales from the book to sponsor a mental health first aid training for ministry leaders cool. uh, in, in, our, in our church. And we had people from all across the state and some people from outside of ministry come mm-hmm. join us because they can see the hurt around them, mm-hmm. right? And so, again, God using a heartache to do something good, right, mm-hmm. to, to redeem a situation. Mm-hmm. Does it always work out that way? No, I am convinced we will not see how all of that's going to work out until we're in glory, right. for sure, right? Yep. I mean, but, but God does give us sometimes, to your point, you know, hey, this is how this worked out for the better. The, the second thing I would say about that, you know, one of the, as we look at Job and we look at what to expect as Christians when we're in glory, we can't fathom what Job's prime looked like. None of us will ever experience life as good as he had it. Right. We, we just won't. And in fact, most of us can't wrap our head around it. Isn't it intriguing that at the end of the story, God takes something we can't wrap our heads around and doubles it? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So I get a lot of hope from that, personally. Yeah. I, I just want to encourage Christians to, 
as as much as possible trust that the Lord is always doing good things and that the, the things that seem like our darkest days, we have no idea what he's working for good. And in glory, I mean, it would be cool, I imagine, heaven in different ways, but mm-hmm. it would be cool if you could drop in on some like the rest of the story you know, land and uh-huh. find out, you know, when this crap was going down in my life, like, what was that? Uh-huh. You know, like, and, and see the dots connected. I think it'd be amazing. Um, I want to promote another ministry that we partner with called issuesifaced.com, which is really appropriate at this time. Issuesifaced.com is a ministry of the Canadian arm of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is called Power to Change. And I worked with them for eight years. I'm still a volunteer with them. Power to Change Digital Strategies does online mentoring. So they, they recruit Christians, everyday Christians, to be trained and be volunteer online anonymous mentors who get connected with mentees who are searching the internet looking for answers to problems that they have. And one of the websites that we send them to is issuesiface.com. If you go to that website, there's probably 60 or 70 issues by now that are written about a story from a real person who's gone through this issue. And then those articles or those videos give you an opportunity to connect anonymously online with a Christian mentor who will listen and pray and encourage you, point you to Christ. And so really this promotion is too faceted. If you're somebody who needs some encouragement or needs to talk to somebody about something that you would never even want to talk to another person face-to-face about. You wouldn't believe the the messages that come in and, and what people disclose to us, which is really, I think, a God thing because we can partner them with Christian mentors who care and pray and point them to Scripture and point them to the Gospel. And so if you need encouragement that way, go to issuesiface.com. On the other hand, if you're a Christian who is interested in ministering to people in this way, you can get trained as a volunteer online mentor. You can learn more about that at p2cdigital.com. That's P, the letter 2, C, the letter C, digital.com. So there's a little promotion on that. Two more questions for you, I think. It might grow into more than that. Um, What do you want to write next? Oh, my goodness. I I tell people, in in some regards, I feel like I'm still recovering (laughs) from the first book. Writing is a daunting process. A mutual friend of ours wrote a book. His name is uh, Rob Bunch. And uh, I asked him when in the process of him writing, hey, what's it like writing a book? Because it is something I kind of kicked around in my head for years to try. And he was like, writing a book's like Everest, climbing Everest. Every day you don't write is a day you don't get any closer to the summit. And there's a lot of truth in that. Um, and like the flip side of that, like John Updike once said, there's no happier creature on the planet than a writer who's not writing. <laughs> so it, it just, it's just, it's hard to get in the flow. And so um, that, all that being said, I would, I, I think I have, I've wet the whistle a little bit. I would like to write again. Um, uh, I've always toyed with, you know, writing a devotional. Um, in fact, that's something I, I sat down to do several years ago when then life happened and we couldn't. Um, uh, but a devotional would be fun. Also, there's, you and I talked about this a little bit when we talked about this session here today. Um, there was a phrase that I heard. So I listened to Alistair Begg's Truth for Life broadcast when I'm traveling once in a while. And I think it was on a trip actually here to Cedar Falls. And I honestly don't remember what the sermon was about or even the passage. But this phrase stuck with me is that life is the sum of promises kept and promises broken. And that hit me a lot because, you know, I, I, I give a lot of credence to our people as good as they are, as their word. Um, and, and more importantly, is God as good as his word? And so um, there's, there's some me- meaty spots in, 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 in Scripture to flush that out a little bit. And I think that's an area I would like to, to write about next and have done some kind of preliminary research around that. So don't have a 
don't have a working title. I have, I have not put a word down on a page yet, but uh, but stay tuned. Have you had a decent response for this book? I have. It's been interesting. I tell people, um, I feel like God has has used this pandemic to maybe get people ready for the book. So I launched the book. My publisher launched this book. April 15th, 2020, so just about exactly a year ago, which I I joke with people might have been the worst month since the invention of the printing press to release a book. (laughs) Honestly, I mean, think about what was happening last April. I mean, everything was shut down. Bookstores weren't allowed to open. Um, It just, it's, you know, so in some respects, my my launch got 2020, if we want to use that as a verb now, right? Um, And so I tell people, here we are a year later, and I'm getting more interest um, and I would say noise around my book now a year later than I did when it was launched, which is backwards. Most books have a big splash. You know, you know, you, you do some things like this for a few months and then you go on to the next thing. And, and mine, I, I felt like, you know, entered the, entered, entered, the, entered the water like the, the diver who gets a 10 in the Olympics, right? <laughs> there, was, there wasn't a ripple, but now all of a sudden God is snowballing a few things. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, in this pandemic, like Job and everybody's situation is different, right? But I don't, I don't know anybody who would look back over the last year and say I was living the prime of my life. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I think God has readied things for that. People can identify with that. Yeah. In a similar way that you were ready to write it, mm-hmm. people are being, have been ready to read it. Right. Have you done an uh, audio version of it? I have not. You can. Uh, I have not done an audio book, and that's not really something that my publisher and I have 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 covered. You can if you. Um, it is available via Kindle, so you can get your Kindle to read to you. Um, yep. You can have it done that way. I don't know what that voice sounds like. Uh, I'm not a big fan of audio books personally, but if that's mm-hmm. your deal, that's one way you can get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, why don't you like yeah. audio books? I I have problems with other voices in my head, Matt. Maybe <laughs> maybe I've got maybe it, maybe the, the maybe I've got enough voices already up there. I don't know, but I've all it's 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 a very rare voice that I can listen to read a text to me for a long time straight. Interesting. And it's that just, makes just sense. that's just a weird thing for me. Yeah. Um so I I, I alluded to the fact I want to write a book mm-hmm. about my experience with Mason and and um I'm wrestling with how how overtly Christian to make it versus how much I think it's going to be less about baseball stadiums than I thought it was going to be. And I'm kind of starting to, I'm glad that we've had seven years to kind of come to terms with this. Cause I don't think I could have done it on a, on a faster timeline. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what kind of tips would you give me or anybody else who's yeah. out there? Just like, like your question to Rob Bunch, what's mm. it like? Yeah. I mean, what, are, what are one or two tips that you would say to a prospective author? Obviously, like you said, try to write every day. Mm-hmm. Rob or, or, or at the very least, if not every day, find your rhythm. Yeah, uh, you know, some people. I, I know people who have gone. I actually did a blog post about this when, on the anniversary of my my book's release. You know, some people. I read a biography once where the author talked about. You know, they they locked themselves in a hotel room for two or three re- weeks and wrote a four hundred page book. There's no wow. way I could write like that. That's just not how I'm wired. Some people can do it. That's great. Yep. I need to. I need to to ruminate and then write and then ruminate some more. And polish, and then come back and do it over again yeah. on certain things, and that's just yep. how. But everybody, everybody's different. So find your style. Uh, I tell people before you, before that, even though, what's your motivation for writing? Yeah, do you, are you are you writing because you want an audience? Are you writing because you're trying to prove something? Or, um, you know, is there? Um, you know, I think uh, Chip Ingram used the word. Um, is there a holy ambition there? Is there something that you're you're trying to do? Yeah. Especially from a, if you're a Christian who's wanting to write, is there you know is there something for the kingdom that can come from your writing? Uh, if if the answer is yes, get to it. Yep. Um, Martin Luther said, "If you want to change the world, pick up your pen and write." And absolutely. Wow. And so do it. 
Yep. Do you like talk to me about the mechanics of writing? Mm-hmm. Do you use Word documents? Did you have a separate document for each chapter? Did you use no. Google? What did you do? Uh, so very simply, because I, you know, it's funny. I was a computer science major in school, but I like technology that's simple. Um, I pulled up. It was a book template on um, Apple's Pages app. So if you have Apple's Pages on your iPad or something like that, yep. there's, there's, there are actually multiple templates for books in there. Mm-hmm. And so I pulled up one of those and, and did everything in that template. I think it's helpful, at least it was for me, it, it made it it made the template look more like a finished book mm-hmm. than just a, a blank word document mm-hmm. was. I think that that's a hard hurdle to get over for some people, mm-hmm. you know, mentally is, oh, my goodness, it's just words on a page. How's it mm-hmm. going to look like it? Well, this actually looked like a book as I made it. And so, and I typically would work on, I wouldn't even say chapters, one, one thought at a time, right? Ruminate on that thought, go to God's word, see what he has to say about it, get some thoughts down on paper, ruminate some more. Yep. Um, and then, and then, and then edit a little bit as you go. And then obviously, if you're gonna if you're gonna publish, and even if you're gonna self publish, I think you should work with a professional editor. I think it's just a good idea. But, um, but that would be kind of the the nuts and bolts of things. So when you went into it, did you have the chapters in your mind already? Like I'm gonna do this, and it's gonna be a chapter on each of the four things that were the prime of Job's life. Uh, and, yeah. So I let the good, the easy thing for me, at least with this this book and the topic of this book, is you know Scripture gave me a framework. Right. It's just, let's just walk through what Job had to say one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. And, and there's enough meat on the bone there to do a chapter on each one. Mm-hmm. And so um, that, that was an easy, easy thing. For, and I, you know, I work in corporate education, so I'm used to teaching. And so yeah. I feel like my maybe I don't know if it comes across this way or not, but I feel like my writing is, is almost like a lesson that you'd put together, yeah. a, a class plan, if you would. And so that, that's kind of how I structure things. But you know, people have their own styles. I tell people, find your own voice, find your own style. I, I you know, I, I like. Um, um, uh, I actually, after I started writing, I found uh, you know a key to a good TED talk. I found this online one time. It's having a through line. So what's that thing that kind of stitches everything together? The gumbo. And for me, it's the gumbo. Yeah. Right. Find that thing for you. Whatever that thing is that's relatable to people. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'll probably be calling you with advice on how to write a book uh, <laughs> at some point. Um, you're going to be at the Cedar Falls Bible Conference doing a afternoon seminar. Absolutely. About this. Give people who might be interested a little teaser of what that's going to look like. So, first of all, I'm honored to be invited. It, it's going to be my Super Bowl for the year. So, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm pumped so, uh, for the summer. So, no, we're going to walk through, and you and I need to have a discussion, I think, offline about, you know, what um, I'm a big believer, at least in what I've been learning lately. And, you know, God God has a theme or a couple themes in mind for this year's conference um, that He's going to, you know, the Spirit's going to move us in. And so, I want to be in, in alignment with that. And so, probably one of the chapters of the book is where I'll focus and we can talk about which, which one's going to dovetail with the other speakers and what they're going to speak, be mm-hmm. speaking about. And so for those who want to attend that session, um, we're going to, we're going to unpack kind of really high level about Job. If you're not familiar with them, kind of like we've done here today. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to dive into one chapter in detail and, and cool. just go through point by point. What does God have to say about this facet of prime living, biblical prime living? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and hopefully have an open Q and a afterward and just get real with people. Mm-hmm. So. That's scheduled for Tuesday, the third of August. That sounds right. And there's a chance we might have to reschedule that to another day. But That's right, okay. I don't think we're going to have to reschedule it. But Tuesday, whatever the date is, I think it's August 3rd at 1 p.m. You Perfect. can come meet Mark, hear a little bit more about this book. Uh, that'll be great. What's the website again? Uh, primedays.org is my author site. You can find out more there. And uh, and the book is The Prime of Days. The Prime of My Days. Of less, my days Lessons in the Prime of Life from the Book of Job. Phenomenal.
It's so. been a great interview. Anything else you want to throw in there? You know, a couple things. Not that I'm a book peddler. Yeah. Uh, so, Go but for where, it. where people can get it. So if you're, if you're listening uh, today and you live in the Cedar Valley area or Northeast Iowa, uh, first of all, I'm a huge fan of independent bookstores by local. And so two that have carried my book from the earliest months it got released. So TJ's Christian Bookstore in Cedar Falls is a great place you can get it. Also, uh, my alma mater, the University of Northern Iowa Bookstore, also wow. carries it, which is really cool. Um, so if you're local, please buy there. Do they know how narrow-minded and bigoted the, the content of the book is? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, they've been super kind. That's I, I'm, awesome. I've been amazed at the reception. Um, and, and so those places, if you're around... You know, do they have a section for like former students? They do. They have an alumni section or, or alumni slash local authors. That's awesome. Yeah. So if you go in there, and there's some neat stuff on that shelf, just in a lot of different genres. So go check it out. Yeah. Um, so either place, uh, Joyce at TJ's will take care of you, as will the staff at UNI Bookstore. And um, if you don't live in Cedar Falls? If you don't live in Cedar Falls. If you live around central southern Iowa, where I, where I live now, around Pella, um, the Eagle's Nest Christian Bookstore in Oskaloosa also okay. stocks it. They're fantastic. Uh, and if you're not in one of those areas, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pretty much any major distributor you want to online. I just ask you if you do that, please read it and please give an honest review on Amazon. That would yeah. be helpful to getting the, the book circulated some more. Absolutely. So. Great, Mark. It's been great to have you with us. Yeah. We're excited for August. We're excited for August. And one last thing before we let you go, Matt. Yeah. So free book giveaways. Oh, that's right. I want to do today. So two ways to get a free signed copy of The Prime of My Days. Number yep. one, if you follow my author Instagram account, which is which is the handle is Prime Days Ministries. Okay. If you, we'll put a post when this, when this podcast gets launched, I will put a post out there about, about our podcast here today. Um, if you, if you follow Prime Days Ministries and tag someone you think would be interested in the book, we'll put you in a drawing for a free copy that I'll mail to you. Uh, every person you tag gets you another entry. So have at it. Uh, the other one would be, uh, Cedar Falls Bible Conference. Um, we'll put, I know you'll put a, a posting up at some point announcing my seminar uh, yep. at, at the Bible conference. So in that one, uh, if you follow Cedar Falls Bible conference and, and tag someone you want to invite to the conference this summer, I tell people it's one of the best kept secrets in Christianity and all of the Midwest. We're working on making it not a secret. I know we, it's, we need to get the word out because it is an incredible week. It's one of the highlights of my year. Um, either way, we'll put you in a drawing for a free copy, free signed copy of the book that we'll send your way. And, uh, and we should give them a deadline, uh, like the end of May. When are we going to post this podcast? Let's start from that and work out. I'd say a couple weeks. Okay. So let's do end of May. End of May? Yep. May perfect. 31st. Anybody who does what he just said has a chance to win. Perfect. Good? Great. Awesome. You want to close us with prayer? Absolutely. So, Father God, it has been a treat to come up here and just um, talk about your word, what you have for us in Job, Father God. You, you are not an unsympathetic high priest, Father God. You walk through us in the darkest of times, just as you did with Job, and you do that through us today, whether it's in a pandemic or something other, otherwise is difficult in a season of our life. And so we thank you for that. I pray uh, that for just anybody who's listening out there today, that they would find encouragement in this, uh, in the book, and most importantly, in your word. And I, and I pray for this ministry, Father God, that it would continue to grow its reach, um, that it would continue to impact people for the gospel. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thank you, Matt.